May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The story is told of a young preacher who was invited by the bishop to preach at the big downtown cathedral on Easter Sunday morning. The young minister knew that his family would be seated right in the front row. The bishop would be seated right over his shoulder, listening intently to every word that he said. He knew that his friends and other people would be gathered around as well. The place would be filled to capacity. And he was about to deliver the most important sermon of his young ministerial career. And he had plenty of time, the story goes, to to get a good sermon together. But every time he went to work on it, it just didn't happen for him. It was like writer's block. He couldn't get a single word down on a page and not a manuscript at all. And so he tried and he tried to think of something, in some way to begin. And finally it occurred to him. He knew what he would do. He would memorize the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. The entire thing, start to finish. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. The entire sermon he was going to memorize word for word, get up in the pulpit, and then just recite it from memory. And so he worked and worked and worked at it. And the day came, Easter Sunday morning, he was in church, seated up on the chancel, right by the bishop. The time came, he got up, he walked into the pulpit, said his prayer, and he launched into it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And on and on he goes, all the way through to the end. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like, will be like a wise man, but those who don't will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. When the rains came and the floods rose, the, uh, the beat against the house, it fell, and great was the fall of it. He was so pleased with himself. He said, Amen, turned around, went and sat down. He had recited the entire Sermon on the Mount from memory. So pleased. So He almost had to pull the smile off his face as he sat there. Well, the church service finished, and, and he went back to the back to shake hands with people, and they were coming out, and... And, you know, the women were hugging him and saying, Oh, what a fantastic job you did. And the men with the firm handshakes, great job. That was fantastic. I can't believe that you could memorize that much. And that was just wonderful. And they were all going along until a small elderly woman came in a straw hat. And she looked up to the young man. She said, That was a fine sermon, young man. He said, Well, thank you, ma'am. I appreciate that. She said, But I have to tell you, I didn't agree with everything you had to say. I think she might have been talking about this passage. I think that she might have been talking about this. Because here's the problem. Jesus says, don't worry about your life. And we have things to worry about. I mean, there are lots of things to worry about. Not all of us are single men living in the warm, sunny, temperate climate of North Palestine. Not all of us get to walk around and not worry about every day. We live in Northeast Ohio, where the groundhog's prediction, albeit wrong, is something that we cling to with every shred of hope that we have. We, we, we know what it's like to live in a cold, snowy, frigid climate where we hope that our woodpile holds out, or that the price of natural gas stays available, or, or, that, or that maybe they can get the, the fuel oil truck out. We know what it's like to worry. We know what it's like to worry about what we have to eat 
and about what we have to wear. Because if we don't worry about it, we'll be regretting it. Worry is what gets us motivated. It makes us work harder. We worry about not just ourselves. We worry about our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews. Some of us worry about people that aren't even born yet. We're worrying about, oh my, you know, that that young couple is going to get married and they're going to have children. Oh my, what's that going to be like? We've learned some things. We learned some things in our Sunday school classes. Let's see if you learned it. God helps those who... Oh, you were in that Sunday school class too, weren't you? God helps those who help themselves. It it gets us going. Get motivated. Do you know what you call a person with a laissez-faire attitude who doesn't worry about anything? I'll tell you what you call them. Unemployed. Right? There's a lot to do. Don't worry about your life. Really? I mean, that's what I want to say to the Lord. Really? Don't worry about it. Do you know how much I have to worry about? And then Jesus gives these two examples. You know them. The first one, consider the birds of the air. Actually, look, he says, look with your eyes. Look at the birds of the air. The second one, he says, think, consider. The first one, look. I want you to look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet they have plenty to eat. The point, of course, is about preparation, right? It doesn't imply sloth. You know, my grandmother taught me, as yours probably did, that the early bird gets the worm. Right, you knew that one too, right? Apparently we went to the same schools. All right, so the early bird gets the worm. Get out, get to work, be vigilant. It's not about being lazy. Jesus isn't saying be lazy. But he is saying something about preparation. And this sounds really good until you think about it for just a moment. What would happen if farmers didn't plant seeds and didn't, weed and and cultivate the land and they didn't harvest them and gather the stuff in the barns people would starve to death that's what would happen people are starving to death all over the world right now for a lack of food and if we follow this advice it would seem like a great shortage of food around the world and then there's a second illustration the one about flowers which likewise sounds very lovely Consider the lilies of field. Think about the lilies of field. They don't toil, nor sow, nor uh, whatever else they do. But uh, they're not like textile manufacturers, and yet they're clothed. Let me tell you something. If there wasn't some soul in Seoul, or Taiwan, or wherever Mexico City, they used to be in places like Oshkosh and, and Akron, but none anymore. But wherever they do textiles now, if there weren't people who were doing that there, I assure you I would not be as lovely as a flower. You know, um, I would not be, uh, I would not be a, um, a sight to behold. We need clothing. We need people who are sewing and making fabric and working. We're not birds. We're not flowers. We're people. And I want to say to Jesus, um, you know, this sounds great. It's wonderful. Love it. But I'm not sure I agree with you. I'm not sure that I'm on the same page that you are. But what is it about the birds and the flowers that he tells us to mimic? That we're really to live like birds and flowers in all ways? This isn't an analogy, is it? This isn't, a, this isn't a, an allegory Jesus is giving us. He's telling us something specific about the birds and the flowers. And it's this. That they actually live with this trust that God will provide all that they need. That's what we should mimic. We should mimic the certainty that they have. 
Jesus slips in a little bit. He gives away. He tips his hat a little bit. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of these things. He knows you have need of food. He knows you have need of clothing. He knows you have need of shelter. Jesus doesn't say it, but He knows you need a lot more. He knows that you need security. He knows that you need love and tenderness and compassion too, doesn't He? He knows that you have need of all the things that He talks about and even more. See, the difference is this. Not will we do the work necessary, the planting, the cultivating, the harvesting, but this. Do we trust wholly in God? Is our life completely given to trusting in God? Because we cannot serve two masters. That's how the passage begins, right? You can't serve God and mammon. Better translated, wealth. You can't serve God and wealth. And, and, and this is when we say, oh, that's good because I'm not wealthy. Oh, hold on just a minute. Just a minute for those who would say they're not wealthy. If you have a dollar in your pocket or at home or somewhere, you are wealthier than 90% of the people who live on this planet right now. And if you live in a home that makes $40,000 a year, you live in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Yeah, we're all wealthy. The issue isn't about whether or not you have any cash reserves. That's what wealth is. The question is whether you trust in those cash reserves. It's not about whether you have wealth, but whether you trust in it. You can't trust in both yourself and in God. Your ability to, uh, to take care of yourself. I don't think Jesus is saying there's anything wrong with having reserve. I think he's saying there's something wrong with trusting in it. Because our trust should be completely in God. God takes care of the small details. So when He urges you to do something, do it. When He urges you to take a chance, take it. When He urges you to, to step out on faith, step out. It's about believing that He'll take care of you no matter what. I think I've told you the story. If I have, pretend like I haven't. Okay, it'd be like the first time you've ever heard it. But when, when I was a doctoral student in, in seminary, uh, my youngest son was only five years old. And uh, we used to walk over to my office all the time. He'd want to go over there. And we lived in a townhouse and go across campus to where my office was. And, and we would walk across there. And as we were, we'd go down these steps by these apartments. And there was this wall that kind of went around the air conditioning units. And it was about five foot high. And so you're walking down the steps. The wall would go straight. And, and, and Dietrich would walk out on the wall. And I'd go down the steps. And, and we'd meet at the end of the wall. And just a, a wee little boy, just in kindergarten. And he would get out to the edge of the wall. And, and he would put his arms straight out like this. And I would stand right in front of him, and he would say, all right, are you going to catch me? I would say, yeah, I'm going to catch you. And he'd close his eyes really tight. And then he would fall forward and let gravity do the rest. Boom, right into my arms. And he would giggle and giggle and giggle and say, oh, let's do it again, do it again. So I'd put him back up on the wall, stick his arms back out. This time, he'd hold him longer, you know, before he peeked to make sure I was still there. And he'd fall forward right into my arms. And we'd do it again and again and again. You know how it goes. And finally, I'd say, all right, no, this is last time, last time. All right, one more time. I'm going to keep my eyes closed all the way this time. And he'd keep his arms out and then just fall forward into my arms and giggle. I was a doctoral student. The most important lesson I learned, I learned from a kindergartner. That when you fall into your father's arms, he will always catch you. Amen.